Hi, everybody, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens, and this week, in our 18th session, believe it or not, we're actually going to close out the second chapter of The Fellowship of the Ring, which I intended to do last week, but as you well know... I was waylaid by fascinating tangents, and we didn't cover as many slides as I'd hoped to. So what I did is take the discussion of the back half of Chapter 2 and expand it just a little. I restored some of the slides that I had to cut because, hey, you know how mindful I am of my schedule and how much time I have to cover this material. So I had originally cut some slides. I have now replaced those slides, and we're going to have a fascinating discussion of the history of the ring, I suppose, from Gandalf's perspective. Then we're going to discuss Frodo's choice and exactly what that means and then we're going to get to the formal introduction into the plot of one Sam Gamgee. It is going to be a fascinating discussion. And of course, I still have a fair amount of material to cover. So I'm going to try and do this in 90 minutes. And I'm going to try and do it in 90 minutes before the storms hit here in Oklahoma City. We ha- we are uh, forecast some genuinely dreadful weather this afternoon. So I'm hoping that I can take care of business here before the storm strike, which is, if you're curious, why we are doing this an hour earlier than originally planned. I don't normally move sh- uh, move live sessions up in the schedule, but I had to do it today. So here we are. We're going to cover this material. It is going to be a fascinating discussion. I see Angela and Jenny and Jean and, and Lauren is here and Pete is here. This is Pete's first session and Megan's first session. This is excellent. Welcome to There and Back Again. I hope you have a good time. Everyone here in the YouTube chat, including Becca and Suzanne and Sam and Jackie Boatman is here too. Everyone who is here is just just lovely. Just just my favorite people. Yes. <laughs> yes, the, the storm's on the way, indeed. Yes, good. All right. Let's get into it then with um with actually the last slide that we looked at last time. I want to go back to this because uh running out of time as I did, I didn't really get a chance to properly parse this last paragraph. So this is the slide that we discussed at the end of last week's chapter. This is Gandalf talking about the master ring, the one ring to rule them all. And I want to skip ahead here to the last two paragraphs as we discussed last time. I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And already, Frodo, our time is beginning to look black. The enemy is fast becoming very strong. His plans are far from ripe, I think, but they are ripening. We shall be hard put to it. We should be very hard put to it, even if it were not for this dreadful chance. And I wanted to break down two quick things that I didn't really get an opportunity to discuss last time. Last time we did talk about that slightly syntactically ambiguous, so do I, said Gandalf right there at the beginning. We talked a little about how from an in-universe perspective, Gandalf is clearly not referring to himself. He is not—he uh, is not commiserating with Frodo over their shared condition because there was never an opportunity for Gandalf to avoid the rise of the enemy, to avoid the return of of Sauron in power and in force. Rather, Gandalf is extending a kind of pity, I suppose. He is saying to Frodo, "Hey, I wish this hadn't happened to you, too." But we all are dealt the hand that we are dealt. We all have to respond in the way that we respond. And we get this oft quoted, and I think oftentimes imperfectly quoted line. We get this, um, all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And you'll see that on bumper stickers and, and typographically arrayed for, for prints for your wall and so on and so forth. You'll see it on coffee cups. And it's a lovely sentiment just abstracted from the text. All that we can do is, is make the most of the time that we have. But it seems to me that that isn't entirely what Gandalf is saying. He's not saying, hey, Frodo, 
tough luck that you were born into this tumultuous and tempestuous time. Too bad for you that things are looking black and that the enemy is gathering his power. That really sucks. But you know what? You've just got your little hobbit life. You should use your little hobbit life to further your own ambition, to, to engage in whatever pleasures you, see, you deem appropriate. You should live your life to the fullest. It seems to me that that is not, in fact, what Gandalf is intending here. When he uses the word time, it seems to me that he's not talking about an allotted span of years as much as he is talking about burden and opportunity and context. He's talking about the times into which you are born. He's talking about the state of the world. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. He's not necessarily talking about the lifespan of a hobbit. Yes, terrible things are going to happen. Good things are probably going to happen too. But, you know, you've got maybe 90 years, maybe 95 years. Maybe if you've inherited something from, from your uncle, you might even push to like 120. It's possible. But really, all that you've got to decide is what to do with your life. That doesn't seem to me his, his actual intent here. It seems to me that what he is saying is what is left for us to decide is how we contribute to the world in which we find ourselves, to our entire social and cultural context, to the state of the world today. No one asked to be born into these times. Everyone has been dealt a tough hand. Literally everyone who is alive today. And we are going to see this echoed much later in the book, by the way, when we talk to Denethor, when we talk to Theoden, we're going to see some sense of this ripple outward from this moment through the rest of the book. And when that happens, we're going to see some different but ultimately compatible perspectives on this idea of, of ill luck, ill chance, if chance you call it. This, this notion that everyone who is alive right now has kind of been dealt a crappy hand because you could have been born two generations ago and never felt the influence of the shadow. You could have been born 10 generations ago and never felt the influence of the shadow. You could, we hope, fingers crossed, be born two generations from now and never feel the effect of the shadow. But you're here. This is the end of the third age. This is potentially the end of everything. And it falls to us to decide what to do with our time, with the life that we have been handed, with the cards that we have been dealt. What do we do? So even in this moment, Gandalf isn't just commiserating with Frodo. He's actually throwing forward to the choice with which Frodo will be presented later in the chapter. The choice which will ultimately define the arc of the entire book, ultimately define the, the arc of history in Middle-earth, ultimately define, I mean, this is arguably one of the most important events that will ever happen within the span of Middle-earth, at least the events that flow forth from this moment, from Frodo's decision. And I think, too, we can see this reflected in that, in that last, uh, the last pair of lines here. We shall be hard put to it. We should be very hard put to it, even if it were not for this dreadful chance. Things do not suck right now, Frodo, because the ring has fallen into your lap. This is not Bilbo's fault. This is not my fault. This is not even the ring's fault. Things are going to be very bad no matter what. We shall be hard put to it. We should be very hard put to it, even if it were not for this dreadful chance. Even if you'd never heard of the ring, your life is going to be tough because the shadow is gaining his strength and he is going to once more spill out across Middle-earth. There is going to be war and there is going to be conquest and there is going to be suffering and it is going to touch us even here in the Shire, even so very far from Mordor. Uh, the Shire does not include Mordor. The folks of the Shire do not include Mordor on in any maps and you can be certain, and we can actually be certain of this because of the amount of time it takes the Black Riders to find the Shire, that the Shire is listed in no map in Mordor. A world away, you will still feel the, influ the influence of Sauron. 
And that would have been true, even if it weren't for the ring and the dreadful chance with which we are presented. Um, as Jackie Bowman says, at least we have the ring, but this still sucks. It super does. It super does. Um, Gene says, I think, too, there's an element of looking at the way in which time being fleeting matters. We need to choose how, how to spend this time because now matters. I completely agree. I completely agree. And this speaks to, um, this speaks to the notion of um, power as it is mm, <laughs> incarnated and, more importantly, not incarnated in Middle-earth, the way in which we've drawn division before between the great and the small, the, the powerful and the somewhat more humble. I talked a lot, as we discussed The Hobbit, about the way that Bilbo's luck functioned, the way that his luck would create an opportunity, would open a door, but then, time after time after time, we see that, that Bilbo actually takes action. He seals the deal. He, he leverages his luck, leverages the opportunity to, more often than not, good effect, to, to, to positive effect of choice. In a world which tends to skew toward prophecy and destiny and, and, and preordination, you know, we, we get this sense that from, from the Ainulindale onward, in fact, that, that history has a shape and that shape has been somewhat predetermined. But the very subtle and critical emphasis that Tolkien places on choice throughout the series and, well, I was going to say perhaps never more importantly than this chapter, but no, there will be one that is, that is comprehensively more important than this chapter toward the end of The Return of the King, but we'll talk about that when we get to it. As far as we know, at this point, Frodo's choice is, is as I said, one of the most important events in the history of the Third Age. This is absolutely critical. So we're going to track Frodo's actual process of, of choosing as we move through this chapter, but we have a few other things to, uh, we have a few other things to get to first. Yes. Uh, let's take a look then at the history of the ring. This is one of the slides that I got to add back in because now I have a whole session to talk about this, uh, this, uh, passage in the book. The enemy still lacks one thing to a knowledge to beat down all resistance, break down, break the last defenses and cover all the lands in a second darkness. He lacks the one ring. The three fairest of all, the elf, the elf lords, hid from him, and his hand never touched them or sullied them. Seven the dwarf kings possessed, but three he has recovered, and the others dragons have consumed. Nine he gave to mortal men, proud and great, and so ensnared them. Long ago they fell under the dominion of the one, and they became ringwraiths, shadows under his great shadow, his most terrible servants. Long ago... It is many a year since the nine walked abroad, yet who knows, as the shadow grows once more, they too may walk again. But come, we will not speak of such things even in the morning of the Shire. So it is now. The nine he has gathered to himself, the seven also, or else they are destroyed. The three are hidden still, but that no longer troubles him. He only needs the one, for he made that ring himself. It is his, and he let a great part of his own former power pass into it, so that he could rule all the others. If he recovers it, then he will command them all again, wherever they be, even the three, and all that has been wrought with them will be laid bare, and he will be stronger than ever. And this is the dreadful chance, Frodo. He believed that the one had perished, that the elves had destroyed it as should have been done, but he knows now that it has not perished, that it has been found, so he is seeking it, seeking it, and all his thought is bent on it. It is his great hope and our great fear. There are a couple of interesting points of speculation, I guess, in this slide, one of which is oftentimes called out as 
something of an inconsistency. We've talked about the degree to which Sauron's power has been poured into the One Ring. This is its significance. This is the source of its power. Because Sauron is separated from the actual light of creation, he cannot truly subcreate. He can only expend his own energy in the creation of these fell artifacts, which he does. But in so doing, he has diminished himself. And the idea is that if we can destroy the ring, not only can we deprive him of this portion of his power, but we can deprive him of the opportunity of of assuming control over the other rings, even, Gandalf says, the three elven rings, which is surprising because of how the three elven rings were never sullied. And Sauron wore the one ring for 2,000 years. So the degree to which the elven rings are even potentially corruptible is interesting, to say the least. That, that is a point of, of speculation. But it is perhaps more surprising that Sauron believed the One Ring to be destroyed. Because ultimately, we're going to see what happens when the One Ring is destroyed. Hey, you guys, minor spoilers for the Lord of the Rings. We're going to see what happens. And it seems surprising that Sauron could have, even for a moment, believed that the Ring had been destroyed. And I think that that detracts from, in a sense, the uniquity of the One Ring. This is an unparalleled magical artifact. No one has ever seen anything like it or, or even dared to, to speculate about the nature of its power. No one knows really what will happen when it is destroyed. Oh, we're getting some, yes, we're getting some uh, speculation here about the Elven Rings. I'll talk about those in just one minute here in the YouTube chat. Yes. Um, so we don't know what will happen if the One Ring is destroyed. Sauron apparently doesn't know what will happen if the One Ring is destroyed. If he, if Gandalf is correct and Sauron believed that the Ring was destroyed, then it's kind of a no harm, no foul. Well, I guess I'm diminished. I guess I'm depleted. I guess the energy that I poured into the creation of the One Ring is now gone. Well, too bad. Now I only have enough power to destroy the world 17 times over. There is a fundamental difference in our perception of the One Ring and Sauron's investment of power into the One Ring now and at the end of the book. And we'll talk a little about how that works. Um, yes, I want to... Uh, let's let's recap the Elven Rings then, because there are three Elven Rings, Vilya, Nenya, and, uh, and Nadia, the one that I can never remember, even though it is perhaps the most important. Uh, the Blue Ring, the Ring of Air, Vilya, is in the hands of Elrond Half-Elven at Rivendell. He has held that ring basically since its creation. Nenya, the Ring of Adamant, the Ring of Water, is in the hands of Galadriel and Lorien. She, too, has held that since its creation. The third ring, Nadia, the Ring of Fire, was originally carried by Círdan the Shipwright, but he gave it to Gandalf 2,000 years ago when the wizards came into Middle-earth. So Gandalf has been carrying one of the three elven rings for 2,000 years, is wearing one of the elven rings here and now. Gandalf wearing one of the elven rings, hmm. it may strike you as a pretty terrible idea. It kind of strikes me as a pretty terrible idea because at least Elrond and Galadriel reside in, in bastions of elven power. Sauron will not tread casually into either Lorien or Rivendell. But Gandalf travels around all over the place and he just has one of the elven rings. And you can argue, I think, that if Gandalf is killed, if Gandalf is destroyed, if Gandalf particularly is taken by the enemy, then their 
their theft of one of the Elven Rings of Power would actually be fairly minor compared to the death of Gandalf or compared to the damage that would be done by the, the torture and torment of Gandalf, potentially. But yes, those are the three Elven Rings. One is held by Elrond, one is held by Galadriel, one is being worn by Gandalf. Right now, the Lord knows, he never mentions it. We should say, too, that the reason the Elven Rings are exempt is that the Elven Rings were made by, all the rings were made in Eregion in the middle of the Second Age. But uh, the three Elven Rings were made by Celebrimbor alone. Sauron's influence never touched those rings, which is why they have never been corrupted. The idea of the rings was positive. The idea of the rings was, uh, the rings themselves were a good idea, not the One Ring. To exert dominion is always going to be evil in Tolkien's universe, but the rest of the rings were supposed to be positive, were supposed to be beneficial. They just weren't. They were corrupted because of the foul influence of, of Sauron. Let me see. Um, Jackie says, from how I understand it, there's no win for the bearers of the Elven Rings. If Sauron gets the one back, he'll ruin all they've created. If the one is destroyed, their power will diminish. True, though the diminishing of power is inevitable particularly for the elves. The elves the elves are the poster children for the no-win scenario. They are never going to achieve again their greatness. They are never going to leave behind the mortal realm and ascend into their reward. They are never going to, to reach a kind of fulfillment. The story of the elves is long and tragic. And I think, Jackie, you're absolutely right that the story of the elven rings is similarly long and tragic, but that seems to me perfectly representative of elven culture. They are, their time is waning. They are passing into the West. We begin this story with, with accounts of them passing into the West. And that is just a process that is going to continue. There is never going to be, you know, mass immigration into Middle Earth from Valinor. Never again. The time of elves is nigh done, at least. So they're only ever fighting a rearguard action here. They're only ever trying to, to preserve what can be preserved, to somehow try to, to win a comprehensive victory, though the degree to which they're pursuing that goal is questionable, at least. Um, and this is, this is the story of elves in Middle-earth. Yeah, good. Um, I see reference here to Gilgalad. Yes, Gilgalad gave Elrond the ring. Yes, yes. Um, says Jackie, to, to, credit, to give credit where credit is due. Yes. Um, let me see here. Uh, Jenna says, yes, Gandalf having the ring never made sense to me. Um, it's very much a Silmarillion aspect. Um, it's, it's very much a part of, of the Silmarillion perspective on the story. And the Silmarillion perspective on the Lord of the Rings is not incompatible because Tolkien, but is uh, still very different in texture. Um, it is still, I mean, when we're introduced to Gandalf in the second chapter of the Fellowship of the Ring, the narrator draws our attention to how he has aged. His, his beard and his eyebrows are even longer, which is impressive, and his face is more worn with care and, crucially, with wisdom. So Gandalf has aged in the 80 years since we saw him, and it is a it is a, an actual perceptible difference. But our understanding of wizards in The Lord of the Rings is really not particularly deep. It's really not particularly acute. He's just a wizard. He's fulfilling the archetypal role. When you read the Silmarillion and you get the accounts of the wizards and, and what they actually are and, and how they are embodied, I guess, as they come into Middle-earth, you get a very different perspective on what it is that they're doing and, and how important it is, which is, I think, this is attention only for people, I guess, who have read the Silmarillion. This is, this is one of the ways in which the criticism of Radagast is absolutely justified. 
the wizards come into the world to fight the enemy. That is it. That is their purpose. They, they undertake a huge sacrifice in order to do this thing. Radagast gets into Middle-earth and immediately goes native. He immediately forgets his greater purpose. He immediately forgets his, his calling. He forgets the reason that all of this is happening and starts palling around with the animals instead. And we might argue, particularly from a, a kind of environmentalist Tolkienian position, that Radagast is exhibiting virtue, that he is here living a good life. But he has fallen from the path of wisdom. He is, is not pursuing the vital goal which he undertook voluntarily. So the criticism of Radagast for abandoning his post, if you like, I think is somewhat more justified than, than a casual reading of the book might suggest. Okay, that was the wildest tangent I've maybe ever taken during one of these sessions. So we'll, we'll get back to, uh, we'll get back. Okay, let me see. Uh, Josh from 13 says, the elves are a tragic race, especially compared to the, uh, compared to the doom slash gift of men. Men want the immortality of the elves, but the fact they can die and move on is their grace. Beautifully expressed, Josh Rooms. Yes, excellent. Um, yes, but the elves, uh, Josh Rooms continues here, but the elves can never rejoin Iluvatar. They are cursed to remain away from the creator. Yes, that is their burden. That is, they, they get immortality, but they are separated. And that's so fascinating to, to consider that we think of elves and elves are presented to us within the pages of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and, and throughout fairy culture, you know, the, throughout the, the many stories and, and, and traditions that Tolkien was referencing in his subcreation. Elves are presented to us as ethereal. They're presented to us as supernatural. But the truth of it is that elves are far more natural than men. Elves are far more natural than dwarves. Elves are the most natural because they are ultimately, fundamentally connected to the world. They are never going to leave it. They are never going to, to be separated from it. Human beings, men, dwarves, possibly, arguably, hobbits, probably, flit into existence in this world, lead wild and riotous lives, and then go on to their reward. They are reunited with their creator. They are, they are given heaven, the afterlife. Elves are never going to get that. They are of the world. And that is the root of their, their fundamental tragedy. Yes. And the, the, the sadness of that, of course. Yeah. Um, yes, let me see. Uh, Lauren says, I would definitely criticize Radagast the same way I do environmentalists who see humans as always a plague. Yes, Radagast is certainly, um, hmm, is certainly very fundamentalist in his politics. That's fair to say. Yes. <laughs> Good. Okay. Excellent. Let's see here. Um, was that everything that I wanted to cover off of this slide? Well, we have, of course, the introduction of the nine. We'll get to all of that in due course. But yes. And as we said, Gandalf here is very assured that Sauron still has the nine rings, though there doesn't seem to be anything in the text that suggests that he couldn't distribute those nine rings again. He doesn't. And minor spoilers, he doesn't do that. But he could, potentially. So the fact that Gandalf is, again, perhaps a little unsure about the existence of the One Ring, perhaps a little unsure about the actual identity of the One Ring, we can forgive that. We talked a lot about that last time. So let's move on to our beat-by-beat our -beat analysis, then, of the history of the Ring, and we'll begin with uh, Isildur and the Gladden Fields. Why? Why wasn't it destroyed? cried Frodo. And how did the enemy ever come to lose it if he is so strong and it was so precious to him? He clutched the ring in his hand, as if he saw already dark fingers stretching out to seize it. It was taken from him, said Gandalf. The strength of the elves to resist him was greater long ago, and not all men were estranged from them. The men of Westerness came to their aid. 
That is a chapter of ancient history which it might be good to recall, for there was sorrow then too, and gathering dark, but great valor, and great deeds that were not wholly vain. One day, perhaps, I will tell you all the tale, or you shall hear it told in full by one who knows it best. But for the moment, since most of all you need to know, uh, excuse me, since most of all you need to know how this thing came to you, and that will be tale enough, this is all I will say. It was Gilgalad, Elven King, and Elendil of Westerness who overthrew Sauron, though they themselves perished in the deed. And Isildur, Elendil's son, cut the ring from Sauron's hand and took it for his own. Then Sauron was vanquished, and his spirit fled and was hidden for long years, until his shadow took shape again in Mirkwood. But the ring was lost. It fell into the great river Anduin and vanished, for Isildur was marching north along the east banks of the river, and near the Gladden fields he was waylaid by the orcs of the mountains, and almost all his folk were slain. He leapt into the waters, but the ring slipped from his finger as he swam, and then the orcs saw him and killed him with arrows. Gandalf paused, and there in the dark pools amid the Gladden fields, he said, the ring passed out of knowledge and legend. And even so, much of its history is known now only to a few, and the Council of the Wise could discover no more. But at last, I can carry on the story, I think. There have been tough times before. Long ago, the shadow extended out across Middle-earth. Long ago, the elves and men united, well, not all men, some were estranged by implication from Gandalf's words here, but the elves and men united and fought back against Sauron and were successful, though it claimed both the life of Gilgalad, the elven king, and Elendil of Westerness. Isildur, Elendil's son, cuts the ring from Sauron's hand and claims it as his own, which is, of course... A troubling thing itself. Then, two years later, as we discussed last time, Isildur is traveling near the Gladden Fields, is fallen upon by orcs, and is killed. The ring is lost. This is the first part of the history of the ring. Or the second part, I guess, after Sauron made the, made the ring and wore it for a couple thousand years. I want to focus, though, on the second chapter here. The strength of the elves to resist him was greater long ago, and not all men were estranged from them. Well, okay, Gandalf, if you're trying to offer comfort, maybe don't start with, hey, the elves back then, they were actually pretty strong. And the men, also pretty awesome. Nowadays, don't get me started. The men of Westerness came to their aid. That is a chapter of ancient history which it might be good to recall. For there was sorrow then too, and gathering dark. So two things were happening. There was a gathering darkness, and there was sorrow but great valor and great deeds that were not wholly vain. Gandalf, maybe work on your bedside manner here a little bit. Maybe, maybe, just, maybe just a little bit. Because there was darkness, there was despair, there was sorrow, but there was valor and there were great deeds and they didn't completely fall apart. They weren't wholly vain. Some of the great deeds, I mean, maybe accomplished a little bit. That's good, right? So back when elves were strong and men were faithful, there was valor. There were great deeds. And some of them weren't complete ruinous, riotous failures. That's really problematic in terms of, of trying to reassure Frodo here at this point. Um, and yet... <laughs> Yes, yes. We're talking about whether or not Isildur is, is weak or is, uh, is 
somehow misrepresented here. I will say, for those of you who are curious, you should definitely go and read The Disaster of the Gladden Fields in Unfinished Tales. That gives an account of the actual... Uh, the actual death of Isildur and, and gives a very different perspective, but certainly, yes. Um, the son of the king cuts the ring from Sauron's hand, takes it as his very own, dies two years later, and the ring is lost in the Anduin. This is not, like, a great story. This is not terribly heroic, as it's presented to us here in The Lord of the Rings. But yes, there, there is uh, a lot more going... Oh, as as, uh, as I just scrolled past it, Jackie said, Isildur is a much more sympathetic character in Unfinished Tales, but not in The Lord of the Rings. No, that's absolutely fair. Um, yes. As Gene says, Isildur's best is not good to blatantly pull from storms uh, from storms on the way. Yes, okay. Um, as Jenna says here, yes, Middle Earth is the epitome of the idea that you should know everything about your world and its characters, and your readers don't need to know it. Yes, I couldn't agree more. This is picking up on a conversation about uh, about foreshadowing. As, as Diane says, part of what drew me into the Lord of the Rings is the fact that the history is only hinted at and never explicit. The little glimpses at a bigger world. Yes. This is often the thing I, I would say for which Tolkien is most frequently criticized. This is, this is for, for people who struggle with the Lord of the Rings, this is most often their point of criticism. It's just, it's so dense and everyone is son of so-and-so and a thousand years ago this, and well, this spoon was carved by such and such a guy on the banks of the river here, and it's all terribly complicated and proper noun, proper noun, proper noun, proper noun, and it's word salad. And okay, I love the Silmarillion, you guys. There are parts of the Silmarillion that do read just a little bit like that, as has been said before, I think, here in the YouTube chat. There are parts of the Silmarillion that read a little bit like the begetting chapters of the Bible. But Tolkien meant it all. It's not just word salad. It's not just a, a confection. And he's not trying to, to overpower you with nonsense. All of these things are thought through. All of these things are fundamentally consistent and consistent in a very careful and yet ambitious way. The depth of detail here is extraordinary. And the degree to which the suggestion of detail, the suggestion of deeper stories, of older stories, just of other stories, really does make you feel as though, A, Middle-earth is a real place, that the complexity of the internal fiction matches the complexity of, of the real world to our understanding. But also it makes you feel as though such care has been taken that every detail can shine in its own significance. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to talk about Tom Bombadil. And we're going to talk about what Tom Bombadil takes from the Barrow at the end of his encounter with the Hobbits. And I won't say any more than that to spoil it in case you haven't read it directly. But uh, Tom Bombadil picks something up and there is one line which in any other book would be a throwaway line. It would just be a bit of character detail. And that line has puzzled Tolkien scholars and fans since the book was written. And we're going to talk about it when we get there, because the wealth of detail is such that every single thing feels somehow significant. And it feels that way because most things actually are significant. Yes. Um, Jenna says, I think the main issue most of my friends have with Tolkien is that he spends like 40 pages describing trees. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, Jackie is taking off. Jackie, thank you for hanging out with us. I hope you have a good day. <laughs> um, all right. Let's move on here. Uh, Jean says, Greek tradition and classic heroes especially were concerned with royalty because the higher one rises, the more good they are able to accomplish and the farther they are able to fall. This is... Um, yes, that, that's a fascinating observation. Um, hmm... That is certainly, I think, one of the things that Tolkien is, is reflecting upon in his discussions of power and stature and greatness is, uh, let me retrace my steps there. Everything you said is right. 
To Tolkien, that kind of power would always corrupt. That kind of power would ultimately always be turned to evil, would always be turned to self-service, would always would always become itself the object of, of desire and of fascination, that there would always be some kind of greed associated with the holding of power. It would either corrupt internally or kind of corrupt externally and lead to conflict and tension. So I think you're absolutely right. And certainly Tolkien is pulling on many of the, the threads of that tradition too, but turning it in, in, in a crucial way, like absolutely offering the opposite perspective on that kind of power, those kind of classical heroes. Yeah. Um, good. Okay. <laughs> Justin Shadowfax here in the YouTube chat is an actual arborist and everyone is, is very into that right now. Uh, Justin, I hope you're going to stick around for the, uh, for the opening of the two towers when we get a chance to talk about Ents and Treebeard and so on and so forth. Okay, let's wrap this up now and move on to the next slide wherein Gandalf tells us the story of what happened, or actually we're going to pick up right after the, the story of the discovery of the ring so many years later. No one ever found out what had become of Deagle. He was murdered far from his home, and his body was cunningly hidden. But Smeagol returned alone, and he found that none of his family could see him when he was wearing the ring. He was very pleased with his discovery, and he concealed it, and he used it to find out secrets, and he put his knowledge to crooked and malicious uses. He became sharp-eyed and keen-eared for all that was hurtful. The ring had given him power according to his stature— it is, not to be wondered at, it is not to be wondered at that he became very unpopular and was shunned when visible by all his relations. They kicked him, and he bit their feet. He took to thieving and going about muttering to himself and gurgling in his throat. So they called him Gollum and cursed him and told him to go far away, and his grandmother, desiring peace, expelled him from their family and turned him out of her hole. He wandered in loneliness, weeping a little for the hardness of the world, and he journeyed up the river till he came to a stream that flowed down from the mountains, and he went that way. He caught fish in deep pools with invisible fingers and ate them raw. One day it was very hot, and as he was bending over a pool, he felt a burning on the back of his head, and a dazzling light from the water pained his wet eyes. He wondered at it, for he had almost forgotten about the sun. Then for the last time he, look up, he looked up and shook his fist at her. But as he lowered his eyes, he saw far ahead the tops of the misty mountains, out of which the stream came, and he thought suddenly it would be cool and shady under those mountains. The sun could not watch me there. The roots of those mountains must have roots in, must be roots indeed. There must be great secrets buried there which have not been discovered since the beginning. Gene is calling out here, his grandmother. That's an especially heartbreaking detail that also hints to a lot of cultural history that needs no further explanation. It absolutely does, and it also ties us back to The Hobbit, where it is mentioned that, that uh, Gollum has a memory of teaching his grandmother to suck eggs. So this casual throwaway reference in The Hobbit, which actually survives from the first edition of The Hobbit before Gollum was revised into the creature that we know today, this is one of those tiny little incidental details that Tolkien never forgets and that he brings back in much later and turns to devastating, devastating purpose. So we see here the consequence of the ring, and there are a couple of lines that we want to pull out very carefully, that we want to look at very carefully. The first here, he became sharp-eyed and keen-eared for all that was hurtful. And it is crucial to pay attention to the back half of that sentence. He became sharp-eyed and keen-eared for all that was hurtful. As has been said before, Smeagol was a hobbit-like creature. He was what the hobbits were, what the, the part of the hobbits were, at least before they came into the Shire. He was already sharp-eyed. 
he was already keen-eared. The change here is not that his senses became acute, but that his senses became acute for all that was hurtful. And then in the next line, the ring had given him power according to his stature. And the combination of those two lines is fascinating because it does suggest that Gollum's wickedness is part of the ring's effect on him, that the ring has, has turned him to dark intent. That's curious, that's fascinating, and we'll have the opportunity to talk about that when we pick up with Gollum again later. But there's another sense in which the ring had given him power according to his stature. And we talked about this a little before, and it is, it is an interesting point of speculation. Why does the one ring make Gollum and then Bilbo invisible? Why is that its primary, question mark, only, question mark, power? Why, in terms of being a magical ring, does it do that thing and apparently no other? And there is a kind of textual explanation for this, and it involves effectively the race world, that you are, when you wear the ring, you are being pulled in part out of the real world. You are being pulled into this mystical, spiritual realm. You are being pulled into another parallel world, which is why you are invisible, kind of, though, yes, the degree to which that is true, we'll, we'll, we'll explore that again later too. But I'm curious about about um, how it is that this power manifests for first Smeagol, later Gollum, and then Bilbo too. Mm. And Nicole is asking here in the YouTube chat, does it play up the strengths of the different races? And isn't that fascinating that hobbits are renowned for their ability to move quietly, more so even than the elves, at least, let me, let me rephrase that a little bit, more so even than the elves in the sense that if you list the three or four or five primary traits of the elves, moving silently will probably not be one of them, but the same cannot be said of the hobbits. Moving silently is actually a big deal for the hobbits. It's one of the things that made Bilbo such an excellent burglar in the first place. And leveraging the power of the One Ring to become invisible just heightens his natural abilities. So is it the case that the ring is responding to something within Gollum and within Bilbo that is true of hobbits. And this is why, of course, the ring will ultimately make Frodo invisible too, because that is the effect that it has on hobbits. If, to pick someone at random, Boromir had put on the ring, would he have vanished? Would it have had the same effect? Would it have heightened some other natural characteristic of his? Is it about the kind of person that you are, the kind of creature that you are, or is it simply your stature? Is it simply that because... Smeagol and Bilbo and Frodo are small creatures, they are drawn into the wraith world and no more. Would the consequences be very different if someone else wore the ring? It's entirely possible. Yes. Yes, as Jean says here, uh, this is responding to Nicole. Yes, Nicole clarified that. Since hobbits are good at stealth, it makes them invisible. And Jean clarifies this. True, it's only the movie that shows a Sildur benefiting with invisibility, yes? Which is an adaptive choice, not a textual one. Yes, um, and Joshua's the same, but it makes men invisible too, correct? And I wouldn't attribute that characteristic to men. Uh, to the best of my recollection, it does not make men invisible. To the best of my recollection, we do not get an account of Isildur being in, made invisible by the One Ring in the text of the Lord of the Rings. You're absolutely right that it does in the movie, but it doesn't here. Diane is saying, living on a riverbank, boating? Maybe hobbits don't like water because they think it's primitive. Possibly, though, of course, some hobbits actually like 
like boating quite a lot. It's the hobbits of Hobbiton that are skeptical of the water. The Bucklanders are, are much more likely to go boating and, and, you know, having fun on boats. Yes, good. Uh, Jenna is asking, ringwraiths wear the rings, don't they? Ringwraiths do not wear the rings. The ringwraiths were, uh, ring were corrupted by the nine rings for men, but then Sauron retrieved them when the corruption was complete, so they are not wearing the rings right now. Does that mean that they are, you know, still under the influence of the ring to some degree? Again, we can, we can speculate. Yes. Good. Good. All right. Let's, uh, let's push on here because we have to talk about, well, hey, we've got another. I will say, though, first of all, that, that this account of, of Gollum's, descent, Gollum's descent into being Gollum, I suppose, um, was always heartbreaking for me as a child. It always felt so, um, so unfair. So, because particularly once you start thinking of the influence of the ring, this is, this is what changes the Gollum story for me. To what degree is Smeagol culpable for the death of Deagle? Well, to a degree. Certainly we're not going to completely, you know, uh, completely remove the stain of guilt on his character for that, that act of outright murder. But again, later, we're going to have to talk about Boromir. To what degree are the people who fall under the influence of the ring responsible for their actions? Did Smeagol just apropos of nothing, without any fell influence whatsoever, killed Eagle just to take his magic ring, or just to take his ring before he even knew it was a magic ring. Well, possibly. But it is also possible that the ring itself motivated this. And we know that this is potentially true because of the circumstances under which the ring is taken. Deagle would have been corrupted by the ring. But, crucially, Deagle just found the ring. And we know, in part because Bilbo found the ring, that the circumstances under which you come into possession of the ring, the circumstances under which you become a ring bearer, do, to some extent, dictate the, the force and rapidity with which the ring will corrupt you. Gollum apparently fell fast. Now, did he fall fast because he was already a, a wretched creature, because he was already awful? Possibly. Or is this the influence of the ring urging him to kill Deagle so that the ring can pass to someone who has already been corrupted in the act of taking possession of itself? You know, I'm fascinated by that. And once you start thinking about the influence of the ring, I think it is all too easy to see Gollum's arc as, as a truly pitiful one, to, to see this thing that happened to him as being an absolute tragedy, just an absolute tragedy. So we'll, we'll be paying, uh, paying close attention to Gollum, of course, as we, as we move forward. Um, let me see. I, we've got a very big... Uh... Oh, Jenna says, this is like the soul discussion in Buffy. Can you be held accountable for your actions without a soul slash with the ring? If you have the ring and you do something terrible, did you do something terrible or did the ring do something terrible? Well you did something terrible because the ring can influence, but it cannot dominate. If it dominates, then you become a wraith. I mean, that's the, the, the clear model that we're given here. So if you are not a ring, if you are not a, a wraith, excuse me, and you are bearing the ring and you're influenced, by, or even if you're not bearing the ring and you're influenced by it, then a strong spirit can defy the ring. And we see many characters defying the ring. Gandalf is about to defy the ring before the end of the chapter. Presumably, presumably Gandalf is, is as susceptible to the influence of the ring, to the whispered suggestion of the ring as literally any other person. Okay, not literally any other person, not Tom Bombadil. 
that's fine. But but certainly other people are 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 moved to try to take the ring or to be tempted to take the ring and resist. So the fact that Smeagol doesn't does make him culpable in some regard. But if it is the influence of the ring too, then I do think we can extend him a little a little pity. Yes. Okay. Um, good. Yes, Jennifer says, I've always interpreted it as Gollum already being a bad character and so falling much more quickly, he kills Deagle basically immediately. Yes, that's absolutely true and that's definitely a legitimate reading. Um, if Gollum is just, if, if Smeagol is just murderous, and again, I'm going to get called out by Tolkien purists here. I know that I am. I know Smeagol and Deagle, but I, 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 my mouth does not like making those words, you guys. So Smeagol and Deagle is just going to have to be good enough for this. Um, but yes, uh, Smeagol kills Deagle immediately. It is possible that he was just murderous. It is possible that he was just already evil, vengeful. It's possible. Though, again, we must be reminded of the civility of Hobbit culture. And we don't necessarily want to infer too freely or broadly from this, but remember, Hobbit culture is basically devoid of crime. There's, uh, Hobbit culture within the Shire is basically devoid of crime. There's no crime. Frodo will claim later on in the book that no Hobbit, wait for it, has ever killed another Hobbit. Now, he's talking about the Shire, and that's fine, but it doesn't seem as though this is a consequence of, you know, a strict adherence to law, this does seem, this, this innate civility does seem to kind of be the Hobbit superpower. And if that was true then, in, in the Shire, then it may also have been true, you know, 500 years ago, and only 500 years ago, remember, when uh, Gollum, or I guess 600 years by now, uh, when, when Smeagol finds the ring, or Smeagol takes the ring from Deagle. So it is possible that this, this murder was an absolutely unprecedented act. And certainly the way in which Gollum is driven out of his community does suggest that his behavior was simply not acceptable, was was e even this, this, you know, sneaking around the place and eavesdropping, you know, just in case we should run into another instance of eavesdropping before the end of the chapter. Um, that this, this, this malicious secrecy of Gollum's uh, led to him being exiled from his community. So it seems as though the community was, again, fairly civil and fairly law-abiding, which would lead me to believe that either Gollum was a, or, or Smeagol was a really bad proto-hobbit, or that he was under the influence of the ring, and it was a stark and immediate influence. We'll just have to wait and see. We'll just have to wait and see what we make of that when we get to Gollum uh, later in the book. Yes. Um, oh, Jennifer takes it one step further. Did Deagle discover the ring because Smeagol would easily kill him? Okay, so the argument here is that the influence of the ring leads Deagle to it. He recovers it because he's the weaker of the two. The ring knows that when Deagle gets back to the bank, it can trigger this murderous impulse in Smeagol, this, this, this acquisitive impulse in Smeagol, and he will kill his weaker counterpart. Possibly. Possibly. That's, that's pretty bad. Yeah, that's pretty bad. All right, uh, let's keep moving on because we have to get to uh, we have to get to pity. Yes, let's take a look at the next slide here. The Shire. He may be seeking for it now, if he has not already found out where it lies. Indeed, Frodo, I fear that he may even think of the long unnoticed name of Baggins has become important. But this is terrible! Cried Frodo. Far worse than the worst I imagined from your hints and warnings. Oh, Gandalf, best of friends, what am I to do? For now I am really afraid. What am I to do? What a pity that Bilbo did not stab that vile creature when he had a chance. Pity? It was pity that stayed his hand. 
pity and mercy, not to strike without need. And he has been well rewarded, Frodo. Be sure that he took so little hurt from the evil and escaped in the end because he began his ownership of the ring so with pity. I am sorry, said Frodo, but I am frightened and I do not feel any pity for Gollum. You have not seen him, Gandalf broke in. No, and I don't want to, said Frodo. I can't understand you. Do you mean to say that you and the elves have, have let him live on after all these horrible deeds? Now, at any rate, he is as bad as an orc and just an enemy. He deserves death. Deserves it? I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment, for even the very wise cannot see all ends. I have not much hope that Gollum can be cured before he dies, but there is a chance of it. And he is bound up with the fate of the ring. My heart tells me that he has some part to play yet for good or ill before the end, and when that comes, the pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many. Yours, not least. In any case, we did not kill him. He is very old, very wretched. The wood elves have him in prison, but they treat him with such kindness as they can find in their wise hearts. Another slide with a lot to parse here. I particularly like Frodo's explosion there at the beginning of the second paragraph. But this is terrible. Far worse than the worst I imagined from your hints and warnings. Jeez, Gandalf. You show up in town after I don't know how many years it's been. A good long number anyway. You show up. You show up last night. You give me dark hints and foreboding about things which, hey, by the way, can't be discussed at night. So I had a great night's sleep. Thanks so much. And now, now you're telling me that my uncle had the one ring, that now I have the one ring, that the whole fate of the world is bound up with me and the Shire and this. This is terrible. Thanks, Gandalf. Best of friends. I'm not sure that I actually read Best of Friends with that degree of sarcasm, but I do like to from time to time. I do like to from time to time. Um, but then much more importantly, what a, pity that, what a pity that Bilbo did not stab that vile creature when he had a chance. Pity? It was pity that stayed his hand. Pity and mercy not to strike without need. And he has been well rewarded, Frodo. Be sure that he took so little hurt from the evil and escaped in the end because he began his ownership of the ring so with pity. This is vital and absolutely opposes the discussion that we just had about Smeagol, because of course Smeagol did not begin his possession of the ring with pity, he began his possession of the ring with murder, outright murder, and Bilbo could have done too. Bilbo could have just killed Gollum, and would presumably have justified it to himself under the influence of the ring. But he didn't. He had pity. And as, as Jen is calling out here, pity and condescension, hooray! Yes, I know, I've been foreshadowing this discussion a lot in our discussion of The Hobbit and even earlier in The Lord of the Rings. Pity is a very unfashionable virtue right now. It is a very unfashionable practice right now. To be pitied is generally considered the worst thing that you can be. To offer pity is generally considered an arrogant and condescending in the incorrect modern use of that word. But pity is, pity is an extraordinary virtue. And it is true that in these classless egalitarian times, we don't like anything that separates us. We don't like anything that suggests that, no, 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 fundamentally, I am different from you. In the modern world, particularly modern Western culture, particularly, particularly here in the United States, we like the idea that we are all on some level the same. So we have commiseration and we have empathy and we have connection. And we will sometimes stray as far as sympathy, maybe, 
But even that makes us profoundly uncomfortable. If you express hardship, if you, if you express you know, negative feeling because you're going through something difficult, it is very difficult for other people to connect with you emotionally because we have to identify with the specifics. We have to identify with, with what you are doing. With, with the position that you are in. And pity is defined by the absence of that similarity. In order to have pity, you have to recognize that the object of your pity is different from you, is in a different circumstance, is experiencing something that you yourself have not experienced. And yes, there is a great irony there that Bilbo expresses that pity toward Gollum and that prevents him from becoming Gollum that prevents him from a darker path in which he and Gollum may actually have shared a great deal in common. Bilbo's pity is, as we discussed at the time, genuinely heroic. It is one of the most virtuous and, and remarkable things about Bilbo Baggins' character. This moment, this choice, this is definitive for Bilbo in a really great way. And here we see Gandalf calling that out, and not just calling it out, but, but forcibly rejecting the premise of, of Frodo's apparently just, just rhetorical expression. What a pity that Bilbo did not stab that vile creature when he had a chance. Pity? Pity was what stayed his hand. Don't use your casual rhetorical flourish with me, young man. I'm going to tell you exactly what went down. And not just that pity is a virtue to be admired, not just that, that this is indicative of Bilbo's absolute heroism, but I'll go one step further. The fact that he displayed this virtue, the fact that he was great in this one small regard, is what saved him. And this ties back to, of course, to the earlier discussion about Bilbo's use of the ring, that because he used his ring to save his dwarvish friends, to, to, to contribute to his community as much as he used it to serve his own purpose, that also diminished the effect of the ring. Yeah. Okay. Let's, uh, let's take a look. The other thing that I wanted to, yeah, I mean, we, we definitely, I'm aware that I'm running just a little long, but uh, we should definitely take a look at this last paragraph too. Um, Frodo here is making the argument that, well, okay, fine. Bilbo made a choice. All right. But now you know what Gollum is. Now you know what he's done. Now you know that at the very least he murdered a dude. And, you know, CSI The Wild is probably investigating that crime scene right now. You know that he is terrible. You know that he is partially at least allied with the enemy. Why have you not just killed him? And Gandalf makes two discrete and equally important arguments against it. He makes the, the kind of philosophical argument. He says, Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment, for even the wise cannot see all ends. I have not much hope that Gollum can be cured before he dies, but there is a chance of it. I have not much hope, but that is not no hope. There is a chance that Gollum, Gollum of all creatures, can be redeemed. That's the philosophical argument against outright murder here, about the outright killing of Gollum, or even the punitive killing of Gollum. But there is another argument too. My heart tells me that he has some part to play yet for good or ill before the end. And when that comes, the pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many, yours not least. And there is a subclause here that is of vital importance because it has been argued that Gandalf's intuition here, his, his belief that Gollum is going to somehow serve the forces of good. Hey, he can be turned. We can redeem him. He can be a good guy. He can be a valuable ally before the end. 
Well, that is not what Gandalf says. That is not actually representative of Gandalf's statement here. My heart tells me that he has some part to play yet for good or ill before the end. We're not keeping him alive because we think he may be useful. We're not keeping him alive because we think he may be an ally. We are keeping him alive because he is, in some sense, important. And that's critical because, of course, here we might hear, if, if we strain to, to hear as we're reading this page, we might just detect the faintest echoes of the Aina We might just hear that song that was sung to create the world, that song that laid out all of history. There is something important about Gollum, but we don't know what it is. And that is reason enough to keep him alive. So Gandalf is making simultaneously the philosophical argument here and the, the pragmatic argument here. If you can say that, hey, intuition is pragmatic, <laughs> which you can because he's a wizard, so that's fine. Um, <laughs> for Gollumings, says Jenny. <laughs> Jenna says, God, this paragraph is so epic. Yes, yes. Side of the Wild is a show that I would watch, says Jenna. <laughs> Yes, it's it's an extraordinary, extraordinary argument against um against, what is Jackie Boatman is saying, no, if you pronounced all the names right, you would have to roll both the R's in Aragorn. Is that true? Is that in the pronunciation guide? Aragorn. That's terrible. Well, okay, I also won't be doing that then. No Smeagol, no Diagol, and no Aragorn. Yes. Pretty terrible. Okay. Um Alan asks, why keep him alive if you are afraid of his part to pay if you are afraid his part to play will be for ill? I get it if you think it's good, but well, Alan, I think the argument here is that that ultimately you believe that the course that the, the universe arcs toward justice. You know, you believe that things are going to work out for the best, ultimately. That things now might be terrible, and things might be terrible for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, but you believe that a benevolent creator created the world for good purpose. And you believe that ultimately that good purpose will be realized if all those creatures, all of those, those forces which are important to the unfolding story, and the argument, of course, would be that every single creature is important to the unfolding story, but that Gollum is specifically important to this one, that all of these forces have to be present. And if they are not, well, then you come into a predestination versus free will argument, which would occupy us for at least the next hour. At least the next hour. Okay, let's... Uh, as Dallas says here, we only see the pieces moving, not the whole chess set. So you have to let the game play out. That's lovely. Yes. Good. And Josh Rooms pulls out too. It's the Batman rule. If you're good, you do not kill no matter what. I don't know, man. I played a lot of the Arkham games and I'm pretty sure that not all of those people were unconscious. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. <laughs> Jackie, Jackie says, wait, what? I missed it. Did you miss me saying Aragorn? That's a terrible thing. You definitely shouldn't have missed that. If only there was some kind of recording of this thing that you could download and listen to on your portable device. Let's move on to the next slide here. And this is another major turning point because as is evident by this point, this chapter is replete with turning points. I have five more slides to get through in the next half hour, you guys. Let's pick up the pace a little bit. I do really wish to destroy it, cried Frodo. Or, well, to have it destroyed. I am not made for perilous quests. I wish I had never seen the ring. Why did it come to me? Why was I chosen? Such questions cannot be answered, said Gandalf. You may be sure that it was not for any merit that others do not possess, nor for power or wisdom at any rate, but you have been chosen, and you must therefore use such strength and heart and wits as you have. But I have so little of any of these things. You are wise and powerful. Will you not take the ring? 
No, cried Gandalf, springing to his feet. With that power, I should have power too great and terrible, and over me the ring would gain a power still greater and far more deadly. His eyes flashed and his face was lit as by a fire within. Do not tempt me, for I do not wish to become like the Dark Lord himself. Yet the way of the ring to my heart is by pity, pity for weakness and the desire of strength to do good. Do not tempt me. I dare not take it, not even to keep it safe, unused. The wish to wield it would be too great for my strength. I shall have such need of it. Great perils lie before me. This is one of my favorite passages in the entire book. Gandalf rejecting the ring, not because he wouldn't want to use it, not because he wouldn't wouldn't do great things with it, but he would become, in a phrase that we'll probably come back to us later, great and terrible. He will become a new dark lord, and it will access him by his pity. It will drive him to do things, because somewhere out there people are weak. Somewhere out there people need his strength in order to do good, and he would do good, and in the doing of good would be corrupted. This is definitive proof, by the way, that uh, that being a ring bearer is more than just holding the ring. Gandalf has held the ring. He has touched the ring. Admittedly, he threw the ring immediately into the fire, but he has touched the ring nonetheless. He has even kind of had the ring in his care when Bilbo left it for Frodo in the first place. But he has not claimed the ring. The ring is not, I guess being a ring bearer is not communicable by touch, I suppose is what I'm saying. Rather, it requires an act of will. You have to actually state ownership over the ring. And he refuses. And it's easy here to be, I think, a little hurt by Gandalf. Such questions cannot be answered. You may be showed up as not for any merit that others do not possess, not for power or wisdom at any rate, but you have been chosen, and you must therefore use such strength and heart and wits as you have. Well, okay, thanks. Thanks, man, because I'm not having a bad enough day. Now you need to sit here and tell me that my stature is insufficient, I don't have power or wisdom. Great. Thanks so much. But then, of course, we immediately turn, because Gandalf won't take the ring. He has trusted the ring to Frodo because Frodo is uniquely suited to this task. Frodo can be a ring bearer and Gandalf cannot. He is afraid of the ring. And I think it's important to to parse that movement too. No, cried Gandalf, springing to his feet. His eyes flashed and his face was lit as, as by a fire within. Why would he spring to his feet? He can't really think that Frodo is going to, you know, thrust the ring upon him. And if he did, it wouldn't matter. Because you have to apparently take action in order to claim the ring. And Gandalf presumably wouldn't do that. But he is still tempted even in this moment. This is obviously, obviously huge. Joshua says, this sort of decision is a great example of why Gandalf was given one of the elven rings. He understands his weakness and recognizes the strength of those beneath him. He knows Frodo is stronger. Yes, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And when we parse these things, um, you may be sure it was not for any merit that others do not possess, not for power or wisdom at any rate. He is not actually saying that Frodo is bereft of either power or wisdom. What he's saying is that other people have those things. Other people could take that part of the task. If it was just about being strong and wise, we've got a line of 50 people. There's a line around the block for people who could bear the ring if it was just about being strong and wise. But it's not. It came to you because you are uniquely suited to this task. It's really rather beautiful, actually. Yes. Okay, good. Nicole says, listen, it's good you have no power. I have it, and and it would do absolutely no good to anyone if I were to take the ring. Yes, exactly, exactly. 
Great. Let's, um, this is, so basically this is to introduce, um, we're going to get a couple of recapitulations of this conversation through the course of the book. I don't necessarily think this conversation is ever going to be better than it is right now. This is my favorite, though I can certainly respect the others too. But we want to be mindful of the presence of the One Ring within the frame of Middle-earth and how the great and the wise have felt about it through the ages. Okay, and continue to feel about it now. And then Frodo makes his decision. And this is the explanation that we get. I should like to save the Shire if I could, though there have been times when I thought the inhabitants too stupid and dull for words and have felt that an earthquake or an invasion of dragons might be good for them. But I don't feel like that now. I feel that as long as the Shire lies behind, safe and comfortable, I shall find wandering more bearable. I shall know that somewhere there is a firm foothold, even if my feet cannot stand there again. Thought of going away, but I imagine that is a kind of holiday, a series of adventures like Bilbo's or better ending in peace. But this would mean exile, a flight from danger into danger, drawing it after me, and I suppose I must go alone if I'm to do that and save the Shire. But I feel very small and very uprooted and, well, desperate. The enemy is so strong and terrible. He did not tell Gandalf, but as he was speaking... A great desire to follow Bilbo flamed up in his heart, to follow Bilbo and even perhaps to find him again. It was so strong that it overcame his fear. He could almost have run out there and ran and then down the road without his hat, as Bilbo had done on a similar morning long ago. My dear Frodo, exclaimed Gandalf, hobbits really are such amazing creatures, as I have said before. You can learn all there is to know about their ways in a month, and yet after a hundred years they can still surprise you at a pinch. I hardly expected to get such an answer, not even from you. And we must break down here exactly what it is that makes this perfect. Exactly what it is about this decision, about Frodo's choice, that is so important. Firstly, of course, it is the fact that he makes the choice. Firstly, it is that he undertakes this task willingly. And throughout this chapter, though Gandalf is, is laying out the facts as clearly as he can, though he is making it plain to Frodo the odds that are stacked against him, he is inviting Frodo to make the choice. Gandalf at no point says, so here's how it's going to be. You are going to take this ring. You are going to go to Rivendell. You are going to do whatever has to be done or so help me. He never does that. He never even really cajoles. He explains. And in the explanation, he leads Frodo to the right and wisest choice. And that right and wise choice is a kind of reluctance. Frodo agrees to bear the ring, but it is to him a burden in a way that it never even was to Bilbo. Frodo is bearing the ring and doing what must be done in part to protect the Shire, in part to protect the world. He is doing so reluctantly and with humility. He at no point says, well, all right, I've got this ring, the shadow's out there. Cool, let's do this. This is going to be an even fight. I've got this powerful artifact and I'm going to use it to beat Sauron. He never does that. The ring is always a burden. It is interesting too, to read this third paragraph. And this does echo earlier stuff that we've, uh, we've kind of echoed th- th- this earlier, dis- or we have foreshadowed, foregolemed this, uh, this uh, discussion earlier in the chapter. When we're talking about Frodo getting restless, we're told that as he approaches his 50th birthday, he is getting restless. He is going on longer walks and he is talking with everyone who crosses the Shire and he is searching out news and he's thinking about crossing the river, but not 
yet. Paragraph, we see what may be a recapitulation of that or may be something different. He did not tell Gandalf, but as he was speaking, a great desire to follow Bilbo flamed up in his heart, to follow Bilbo and even perhaps to find him again. Well, what does that sound like? Justifying your action with an implausible hope. We've seen this kind of thing before and we will see this kind of thing again. This could be the ring talking. This could be the influence of the ring saying, yes, yes, get out of the Shire. I am serious. If I have to spend another minute here with these hobbits, I am going to go nuts. Go find me some elves. Go find me some corruptible man. That would be fantastic. This could be the influence of the ring. Or it could be Frodo's nature. It could be this Tookish streak within him. It could be this adventurous streak within him. It could be something that that drives him forward. And that certainly is, if we are to read this as a simple recapitulation of what we get of Frodo at the beginning of the chapter, then that may well possibly be true. That, that This is just wanderlust. He just wants what Bilbo had. He wants the story, more likely he wants the song that he's heard about all his life. Yeah, it, it's possible. But at the same time, also could be the ring. What do you guys think? Um, Let's, uh, I, I have two slides to get to, and they're both Sam related. So, okay. But all of that is to say that, um, let me cancel the slide for just a second. You guys can make sure that I'm still sitting here. Uh, all of that is to say that Frodo's decision to, to take up this task, Frodo's decision to bear the ring, his decision to do what must be done, but his decision to do it with humility is the perfect response. And this justifies Gandalf's decision to leave the One Ring in the Shire for all of these years, not just with Frodo, but also with Bilbo, that the ring and its corruptive influence are, are simply less dangerous here than they would be literally anywhere else on Earth, literally anywhere else in, in Middle-earth, I should say, on Arda. Um, yes. Okay. Uh, we're, we're shouting for, we're shouting for, uh, we're shouting for, uh, for Sam. So we should probably get to Sam. Um, Tosham says, is it weird? I thought the first paragraph could have been said by either Frodo or Gandalf. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe not by Gandalf, but I should like to save the I should like to save the Shire if I could, though there have been times when I thought the inhabitants too stupid or dull for words. Um, maybe. Yeah, I guess, now that you mention it. All right, let's skip ahead then to Sam Gamgee. This comes as Gandalf is uh warning Frodo that what he done uh, what he is to do must be done discreetly. He must be quiet because the enemy has many spies. Suddenly he stopped as if listening. Frodo became aware that all was very quiet inside and outside. Gandalf crept to one side of the window. Then with a dart, he sprang to the sill and thrust a long arm out and downwards. There was a squawk and up came Sam Gamgee's curly head hauled by one ear. Well, well, bless my beard, said Gandalf. Sam Gamgee, is it? Now what may you be doing? Oh, bless you, Mr. Gandalf, sir, said Sam. Nothing. Least of ways, I was just trimming the grass border under the window, if you follow me. He picked up his shears and exhibited them as evidence. I don't, said Gandalf grimly. It is some time since I last heard the sound of your shears. How long have you been eavesdropping? Eavesdropping, sir? I don't follow you begging your pardon. There ain't no eaves at Bag End, and that's a fact. Don't be a fool. What have you heard, and why did you listen? Gandalf's eyes flashed and his brows stuck out like bristles. Mr. Frodo, sir, cried Sam, quaking. Don't let him hurt me, sir. Don't let him turn me into anything unnatural. My old dad would take me, would take on so. I meant no harm on my honor, sir. 
Sam Gamgee, ladies and gentlemen, his introduction, his forcible introduction into the plot as it unfolds here. Uh, we were mentioning this last week, and I want to uh, to highlight it just a little. We actually get two odd moments here. Uh, bless my beard, says Gandalf. And then in the very next sentence, Lord bless you, Mr. Gandalf, sir. Lore here is short for Lord. This is a colloquial corruption of God bless you, Lord bless you. It's it's the same kind of, of, of colloquial intent. And it makes, as we have discussed before, very little sense within the frame of the Shire, within the frame of Middle Earth. Sam probably wouldn't be referring to a deity figure. And I have seen some explanations of this scent of this fragment, of this, this exclamation here that suggests that, well, okay, but in feudal cultures. But it actually be all right to call someone Lord. The Lord bless you could just mean, hey, the local Duke bless you. It doesn't really hold up in, in the Shire either. Um, if we're going to um if we're going to explain this away, we can explain it away certainly through the frame around the narrative that that once again a later author has revised the Red Book of Westmarch, has has changed what is a uniquely hobbit exclamation here that, that we don't get a translation for. It's possible. But it's also possible that it's just an anachronism that serves to that serves to express Sam's character in a way that is readily communicable to us without actually reflecting the underpinnings, the theological underpinnings of Hobbit culture. It's a little tricky. And all because, as Josh Room says, Sam is dropping eaves. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, so we get the forcible intrusion of Sam, as I mentioned, and um, <laughs> it's so good. And once you've read this chapter for the first time, and you go back through it, and we get from time to time these cutaways to the sounds of, of Sam's shears. We get, you know, just fragmentary references to them through the chapter. Every single one of them will fill your heart with joy because you know what is coming. It's, it's just so powerful, so lovely. And of course, too, this is a moment of enormous catharsis. I mean, nothing less than catharsis. After a chapter of doom and gloom and, and shadow and foreboding, when Gandalf is at perhaps his, his most foreboding, telling Frodo that, hey, you are beset on all sides by enemies and danger. There are spies everywhere. Spies everywhere, Frodo. You better look out. Well, now there's a spy, but it's Sam Gamgee. And pulling Sam in through the window is a great comedic moment. It's a great moment of release. And I think we see that with that transition from Gandalf. I can't imagine him saying anywhere else in the chapter, well, well, bless my beard. That is such a like comedy wizard thing to say. And Gandalf has not been comedy wizard in the rest of this chapter. As I said, he has been filled with ultimate foreboding. Even the eavesdropping joke, the whole thing is is just, uh, don't let him turn me into anything unnatural my old dad would take on so. I meant no harm on my honor, sir. The idea that please don't turn me into anything unnatural, my dad would be really upset. Please, please, please. Is that okay? This whole bounce to comedy is really beautifully, beautifully done. Joshim says, Sam is the greatest hero ever. And Angela says, yes, I love the cutaways to the sounds of Sam working in the background. And Jenna says, Tolkien is surprisingly good at comic relief. Yes, I completely agree. Chris says, I love how Sam's immediate thought isn't how being transfigured might be bad for him, but rather its effect on his old dad. And even that isn't a random throwaway reference because we met the gaffer in the first chapter. We know about Hamfast Gamgee. We know what kind of man he is. And while it's true that he's okay with Bilbo teaching Sam his letters, it's okay that he's fine with Bilbo teaching teaching Sam how to read, and he's sure that he meant no harm by it. 
Hamfast Gamgee would be really upset if his son came home transfigurated into something else, if he came home under the influence of, of magic. The stories are bad enough. Actual magical spells, that would be disastrous. The other thing that I really like here is that actually Frodo's about to make a threat to Sam. He's about to warn Sam, hey, you better wise up or I'm going to have Gandalf turn you into a toad. And the fact that both Hobbit characters make reference to the same idea is fascinating. Because that tells us a lot, I think, about Gandalf's reputation in the Shire. Because Gandalf, as far as we know, A, has never turned anyone into a toad or turned anyone into anything else, and B, possibly can't do that. I'm not sure that that is a power that is within Gandalf's range, if if power means anything in this regard. We've talked before about how magic is an odd and elusive thing within the pages of Tolkien. So it's possible that, that Gandalf has never done this, could never do this, but there are clearly stories right? People expect this of Gandalf. People are aware that when Gandalf is around, if you look at him wrong, there is a risk that he's just going to transform you into something terrible. I love the, the, the consistency of that backstory. Let's get on to the, um, let me see here. Uh, oh, what are we doing? <laughs> um, yes, remember always that the Beatles nearly made a film of the Lord of the Rings with Ringo as Sam and John as Gollum. The John as Gollum detail, are you making that up? I hadn't heard that part. I don't know that part, but I had heard the Ringo thing before, yes. <laughs> All right. Um, Nicole says, such sass, Sam. Bag Ann has no eaves, and if it had him, you could bet I wouldn't drop him. <laughs> yes, Alan says, Gandalf is the boogeyman for parents to scare their children into behaving. Do your chores or Gandalf will turn you into a toad. And now I'm reminded that, of course, all the Hobbit children knew Gandalf by sight. Well, maybe that's because he is the... I mean, they're super excited for his fireworks, sure, but it, maybe that is because he is this, this mythic local figure who, who will do terrible things. Or this one time I heard that Gandalf, you know, this kind of folklore, this kind of emergent folklore within the community. Yeah. Good. Dallas says anyone whose eyebrows reach beyond their hat rim would seem to be frowning a lot. Yes. When they bristle here, this is, I mean, this is bad. That's a lot of bristle. And it's not, I mentioned earlier about how, uh, when Gandalf is introduced at the beginning of the chapter, we note that his beard and eyebrows have grown longer. And his eyebrows were already sticking out past the brim of his hat when he was introduced. So that is a lot. That is a lot. Uh, Angela asks, is Sam's nosy behavior catastrophe?" No, it is not. No, it is not. Sam's nosy behavior is completely purposeful. Uh, Sam is, I don't know, minor spoilers, I suppose. Sam is not accidentally outside of the window through this conversation. Let's get, in fact, to our last slide. And... Um, and um, yes, because oh, oh, I do want to note one thing on this slide. Let me call up this slide first before we move on, because there's something I want to, to pay attention to here. Um, Don't be a fool, Gandalf says. What have you heard and why did you listen? Then Sam has his little cutaway to Frodo and then finally answers the question, kind of. Well, sir, said Fram, dithering a bit. I heard a deal I didn't rightly understand about an enemy and rings and Mr. Bilbo, sir, and dragons and a fiery mountain and, and elves, sir. I listened because I couldn't help myself, if you know what I mean. Lord bless me, sir, but I do love tales of that sort, and I believe them too, whatever Ted may say. Elves, sir, I would dearly love to see them. Couldn't you take me to see elves, sir, when you go? Suddenly Gandalf laughed. Come inside, he shouted, and putting out both his arms, he lifted the astonished Sam, shears, grass, kipping, gla uh, excuse me, grass clippings and all, right through the window and stood him on the floor. Take you to see elves, eh? He said, eyeing Sam closely, but with a smile flickering on his face. So you heard that Mr. Frodo was going away? I did, sir, and that's why I choked, which you heard seemingly. I tried not to, sir, but it burst out of me. I was so upset. It can't be helped, Sam, said Frodo, sadly. 
He had suddenly realized that flying from the Shire would mean more painful partings than merely saying farewell to the familiar comforts of Bang End. I shall have to go, but... And here he looked hard at Sam. If you really care about me, you will keep that dead secret. See, if you don't, if you even breathe a word of what you've heard here, then I hope Gandalf will turn you into a spotted toad and fill the garden full of grass snakes. Sam fell on his knees, trembling. Get up, Sam, said Gandalf. I have thought of something better than that, something to shut your mouth and punish you properly for listening. You shall go away with Mr. Frodo. Me, sir, cried Sam, springing up like a dog invited for a walk. Me, go and see elves and all. Hooray, he shouted and then burst into tears. I mean, the last line is the kicker there. The last line is extraordinary. What we learn here, and I think it's, I think it's pretty clear from Gandalf's reaction here. Firstly, uh, Gandalf asks him two questions. What did you hear, and why were you listening? And Sam, in brilliantly Gandalfian fashion, answers only one of those questions. He answers only half of it. He says, well, this is what I heard, sir. This is it. But doesn't answer, why were, you, uh, why were you listening? Except he does. Couldn't you take me to see elves, sir, when you go? This is partly evidence that suggests that Sam knows more about Frodo's story than he is letting on, and that Sam's presence under the window was not accidental. That, I think, is why Gandalf laughs, because he sees that perfectly. Come inside, take you to see elves, eh? So you've heard that Mr. Frodo is going away. I did, sir, and that's why I choked, which you heard seemingly. I tried not to, sir, but it burst out of me. I was so upset. Well, but we weren't talking about Frodo going. We were talking about there being spies. I mean, we were making plans to go, but it, couldn't or it wouldn't necessarily have been a spontaneous reaction to that last line. Sam perhaps knows more than he is letting on. And here, too, we just see this, this wonderful love of story from Sam. Lord bless me, sir, but I do love tales of that sort, and I believe them, too, whenever Ted may say, Elves, sir, I would dearly love to see them. Couldn't you take me to see Elves, sir, when you go? We keep getting this repetition of sir, this, this almost emphatic, almost punctuative use of the word sir. Again, we get Sam's... <sighs> Sam's blue collarness shining through. The fact that Sam is a servant, and again, you know, we, we talked a lot about that previously, but we get this... This intimacy, this bond, again, Frodo talks kindly to Sam. This is a greater bond than it immediately appears, though, let's just, you know, cards on the table, not a romantic bond. It can't be helped, Sam, said Frodo sadly. He'd suddenly realized that flying from the Shire would be more painful partings than merely saying farewell to the familiar comforts of Bag End. I shall have to go, but, and here he looked hard at Sam, if you really care about me, you will keep that dead secret. I mean, I get it. I understand why reading that paragraph, let alone the rest of the book, you might infer a romantic interest between Sam and Frodo. If this were a modern book written today, that would almost, almost, <laughs> I would struggle to read this paragraph in any other way were this a book published today. But that's not the direction that Tolkien is leaning. That's not the kind of care and compassion that he is leaning upon. He is binding Frodo and Sam together as two perfect representatives or nigh-perfect representatives of their social orders. There is a, <laughs> as Nicole says, darn, snaps, ships dashed. Hey, you can ship anything you like. I mean, you're allowed. And certainly if you go on Tumblr, you'll find a lot of Frodo-Sam ships. And I'm not saying that it's not, you know, a gratifying ship in some regards. Um, Diane offers the heartbreaking thought. I think Ted Sandiman bullied Sam his whole childhood. Oh, man. 
I don't want to think about that. I, I want Sam's adventures at Bang End. I want his his learning his letters and his engagement with stories to be a joyous thing, not a not an escape from Ted Sandyman. Unfortunately, I think you might be right. And the gaffer was emotionally abusive too, says Di. Di, you're breaking my heart. That's a terrible thing. As Jenna points out here, death of the author means you can ship anything you want. Yes. And Jean says, and this I think is a really important perspective on this, something has to be said too, though, of normalizing close male friendships. And the male friendships that begin, Tolkien struggles with some relationships. Let me cancel the slide here. Tolkien doesn't give us uh, terribly frequent or or terribly um, complex romantic relationships. He doesn't give us terribly frequent, uh, it doesn't give us a, a great number of or terribly complex female characters. But he does manage fraternity in the truest sense beautifully. And he handles it in a number of different ways from a number of different perspectives throughout the entirety of this book. So I'm really looking forward to discussing that. But there will be no closer friendship. There will be no closer relationship. There will be no greater love in the pages of The Lord of the Rings than Sam and Frodo. It is a love that is bound by societal convention, but which uh, societal conventions which both parties honor, which both parties respect, and which may seem somewhat anachronistic, if not outright, you know, odious to us from our perspective, still it works beautifully for them. This, I think, not in Lord of the Rings, but man, those couples in the Silmarillion, says Jackie Boatman, with a love heart. I completely agree, of course. This is one of the reasons that I want to talk about the Silmarillion, is that because Tolkien retold so many stories, because despite the enormous prolificity of his career, we have very few actual finished stories, you know? There's a reason that the the History of Middle-Earth series just just swamps the page count of all of his actually finished, actually published works because he would just revise and revise and revise and revise and revise. Because, therefore, the Lord of the Rings occupies this, this monolithic position at the heart of his corpus. Because when we think of Tolkien, we think of the Lord of the Rings, generally speaking. Even people who are Tolkien scholars, even people who are, are self-professed Tolkien fans, think first and think most often of the Lord of the Rings because it is simply the biggest and most ambitious and complete and most successful work that he wrote during his career shadow in tone the rest of the work that Tolkien did. And he is capable of more than this. If he wasn't, he would still be an absolute literary titan. He would still have redefined fantasy fiction. He would still have, have completely changed the path of popular fiction through the 20th century. He would still have given us a genuinely magnificent piece of work. If this was all he could do, that would be enough. But it wasn't. He could do other things too. And well, I guess we'll have the opportunity, right? Because Baron and Luthien is published in like two weeks, two weeks today, two weeks today, Baron and Luthien is published. So uh, we'll definitely have a little bonus. I, I do think what I'm going to do for for when, when uh, Baron and Luthien is, is released, I think what I'm going to do is uh, give people a few weeks to read it and then do like a one-shot session. We'll just slip it right into the middle of there and back again. It'll probably be a bonus session that week, but I would love to read that and then discuss it. Just, just a gloss, just a high-level gloss. And then two years from now, when we start the Silmarillion, we'll talk about it again. And then probably the year after that, when we finish the Silmarillion, maybe we'll look at, you know, he's, he's got other books. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's wrap it up there because it is 3.30 and the storm is rolling in. I'm very glad that I moved this up because, yeah, it's looking unlikely that if we'd started a half hour ago instead of an hour and a half ago that I would have been able to finish uninterrupted. So this is all going to work out beautifully. Thank you all so much for joining me today for the second half of Chapter 2. Let me put up the final slide to show you what we're doing next week. And to tell you in the interim, 
Ah, here we are. Yes, next week, The Fellowship of the Ring, Chapter 3. 3 is company, 9 p.m. Eastern next week. 9 p.m. Eastern, we are returning to our regular evening slot. I say our regular evening slot. We haven't done this in a few weeks. So it's going to be 9 p.m. Eastern next Thursday. That is May 25th, 2017, for a discussion of the entirety of Chapter 3. Chapter 3 also quite a large chapter, but we'll have a lot to discuss, and that will be fine. I will also say, since I've had so many requests about it that you can currently find, if you head on over to pointnorthmedia.com and you click the services button in the top right-hand side, you will find a link there to my upcoming critical reading class. This is unlike any other class that I've ever taught. It is going to be, first of all, a four-week class. It is not a one-shot class. It is an ongoing class. And over the course of four weeks, I am going to teach you to read critically. I am going to take you through poetry, through short fiction, through long fiction. We're going to look at at theme, and we're going to look at purpose, and we're going to look at allegory, and we're going to look at intent, and I'm going to equip you with, with vocabulary and with strategies so that you can do the kind of work that we've been doing here reading Tolkien. If you are interested in starting your own podcast, if you're interested in starting your own blog, if you're interested in writing a book about the stories you love, if you are interested in, in simply appreciating stories at a deeper level, if you're interested in appreciating poetry, if you've had trouble getting into maybe even Tolkien's poems and songs, this class will equip you with everything that you need. It is going to be four two-hour live sessions, just basically like this, this kind of environment, plus reading assignments, homework assignments, questions, discussion on a Discord channel that I'm going to set up. It is going to be, you guys, so much fun. And you can find the link to it over on pointnorthmedia.com. Just click the services button in the top right. That is the critical reading class. Register today because spots actually really are limited and uh, and they're going fast. So if you're interested in it, not only do you get early bird pricing if you go and register for the class today, but spaces are limited because there is going to be an interactive component. There is going to be, as I said, homework and reading assignments and all of that good stuff. So go check that out if you're interested. Don't waste a moment. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. I will see you all next Thursday for Chapter 3 of The Fellow. Fellowship of the Ring. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your contributions, for your emails too. If you're interested in emailing me during the week, if you have longer thoughts, which Twitter cannot handle, which Twitter cannot encompass, you can email me directly, pointnorthmedia at gmail.com. If you are interested in Twitter, you can follow Point North Media on Twitter and use the hashtag TABAGAIN, that's T-A-B-A-G-A-I-N, and I will see your comments through the week. That, I think, will do it. I'm going to go and batten down the hatches before the storm hits, and I will talk to you all again very soon. Until then, take care.